I'm Andy Merckx. You listen to The Bicycle Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Welcome to The Bike Show, I'm Jack Thurston and this week on the show is another conversation from last month's Bike V Design Night at the Design Museum. Well, it may have escaped your notice, but the Somerset town of Froome has emerged over the last few years as something of a cycling hotspot. All kinds of good bikey things are going on down there. And prominent among them is Charge Bikes, a fairly new company which is remarkable for many things. Not least the fact that all its products are named after something that you would normally expect to find in the kitchen. There's the juicer a road bike, the spoon, a saddle, the bowl, a set of handlebars, and of course, the plug. A very simple single speed and fixed wheel bicycle that launched the company into the big time just a few years ago. Well, Nick Larson is founder and creative director at Charge Bikes. And I began our conversation by asking if he could tell me what it was exactly the town of Froome had got going on? Uh, I don't know what it is about Froome. Um, I like the cobble wobble. Um, no, it's just a nice uh, place out of town. And uh, I mean, I love mountain biking, so it's really good in the Mendip Hills around there. And it's uh, close to where I grew up. So I ended up deciding to move there and have my family there. So yeah. And so when did you start Charge and what did you intend to do when you when you started started the company? Well, before I worked for Charge, I worked for another UK bike company, um, Pashley Cycles, for about six years, and I uh, I'd spent a bit of time in Asia, and I decided that the best place to make bicycles was going to be there if we were going to make bikes that were affordable to uh, the general c- kind of consumer. Because Pashley are making them everything still in the in, UK, uh, Stratford yeah. on Avon. Yeah, so. Um, I'd gone out imagining that it was going to be uh, full of little children sitting on uh, buckets, building wheels, and arrived and realised that it was actually 
quite nice working conditions and they were all paid very well so uh, I decided that my that if we if I was going to start a bike company again um, I'd be trying to concentrate on uh, and producing bikes there so um, I worked at Pashley for about seven years and then I decided to leave and I set up on my own um, and then about two years later um, with the help of two uh, private investors I set up the Charge Bikes brand and primarily as a mountain bike company and so this was when about seven years ago seven years ago yeah and then about five years ago I decided to do some urban bikes which probably most of you know us better for in London anyway and we were um, successful in being the first kind of uh, company to be able to produce mass produce some single speed bikes which then became fixed wheel bikes um, and did really well in London and Tokyo and, uh, and and in the States so and that kind of helped fund the continual development for charge from then on. So, so what, what motivated that decision to go into these urban bikes? And were, were, you, were you looking out there at, the, at what was going on on the streets and saying, okay, this is what people are doing themselves. Let's see if we can make something for those who don't want to do it themselves. Uh, I'd pre- I had pretty widely travelled at that point. So I'd, been, I'd seen the scene happening in San Francisco of fixed wheel bikes, but... Um, the idea really was to um, to fill gaps in the market that I felt we could... Because we had a distributor that was selling mountain bikes and road bikes, so the idea was that we filled their gaps in the UK. And so when we re- released our single-speed bike, we also released a range of bikes with the same frame with gears and brakes, multi-speed, so it was part of a range, but it it obviously took off at the same we were lucky to be there at the right time and it wasn't for another like we had about two years of before specialized and trek and the big brands um started to produce bikes at the same kind of price point so so what do you think was um the the reason for your success with those early it was the plug right the plug yeah so um when i first took the plug into we had a range of mountain bikes that were doing okay mount, uh, titanium mountain bikes and uh, cross-country sort of steel frames and I took the first plug probably two years before it came out into the into the distributors and to the two investors, and uh, I showed them the bike. Do you want to describe it a little bit? We haven't got one here, unfortunately, but you're, you're, you're you've seen them lo- on the streets. It but. just looks like a what you would a generic now a generic fixed wheel bike. The most simple way of making a bike. So basically, the idea was that it had no cable guides, no nothing on the frame. It was as simple as possible, which two things made it look clean but also made it cheap to produce because every item that you weld onto the bike costs more so the frame was very simple very easy to produce it was using high quality tubing so it's still fairly light and the idea was that we focused on quality low maintenance and the idea really was to to sort of attract the consumer to a completely different type of bike so i wasn't particularly focused on the fixed wheel it wasn't until actually the first year after we'd launched the bike that we put a fixed cog on the other side so that the wheel could be switched around it it initially was just a a single speed bike but when I first took it in to show the investors and the and the and the reps and the distributors they were like what the hell have you done we're never going to be able to sell this bike and uh, I think they ordered 25 in the first year and then the second year we were lucky enough that um a few of the shops committed to buying containers and then it kind of went from there. What, so were, the, what were their misgivings? One of the problems with the, the sort of the bike industry at the, at the kind of higher turnover level is that they're all enthusiasts and they like road bikes and mountain bikes and they couldn't see 
you can understand why this bike would be something that people would want so why is it something that people wanted because it was simple and it was different um it attracted a lot of n- people that were non-cyclists as i would call them even though they've ridden bikes before to to cycling because it was simple a bit like a skateboard it was just like you could it w- was easy to understand you didn't have to take it back to the bike shop because it only had one gear and it was easily customizable compared to a mountain bike with 21 gears and a road bike with you know complicated gearing on and what so was it what was it selling for originally uh, it was 399 and this year it's back down to 399 so how did so that happen Volume and two years ago we uh, we sold, so we we're owned by the same company that owns Cannondale now, and that made us uh, able to buy at better pricing in Taiwan. So my goal is really to try and uh, make more affordable bikes for for uh, at the low end for the for the um, non-cyclist, and then continue to develop, spend the money that we make, mm. continuing to develop high-end bikes in a different way to and specialised. So let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing that out in the Far East because people often tend to think of, oh, it's from the Far East and therefore it's all the same. I imagine it's not like that. Uh, in, in the last 10 years, Taiwan in particular has gone from being, uh, they've learned a lot and they've changed a lot. So they've, uh, their quality controls changed and obviously that's where all the high-end bikes are made and China's making lower-end bikes. But... I think the key misgiving about Taiwan that I often tell people is that is that it's it's a lot more developed than people kind of imagine it to be and the and the structure of pay and the whole industry is much more advanced than people think it is so the the welders that weld our titanium frames are highly skilled welders in my opinion as good as any any other welder they they've been doing it for years they've worked their way through doing aluminium and steel and they've become titanium welders and uh, and I think that that's one thing that's not documented very well as is, is how how highly skilled they are and how enthusiastic they are as cyclists as well so we'll, when we go out there to see them we'll go out for rides with them and and they are much like anyone else you would see here really so currently at charge what's your sort of balance between the different um, types of bicycle that you're that you're making because you're making pretty much everything are there any, any kind of yeah. bike that you don't make a polo bike i guess that maybe that's coming out next year we make every we're in every category i'm trying to narrow it down to to ones that i think have got the we've got less competition in but we are in every category and uh and that's part of the idea is that we focus on the niches and hopefully one of those niches will become something that's popular so what was the day. what was the reason for sort of spreading out i mean is, is there not a danger that you try and do everything and don't do anything really well there is a danger that's a good question and it's constantly asked so uh, i think this year we've got 26 models and next year 2014 we'll be back down to something like 18 because of that very reason and so where where do you see it going in your in, in, uh, we have in two distinct categories one is urban bikes and the urban bikes are very much uh, at a price point that means that we can attract new cyclists and then we have uh, we do very well with the high end um and the, the bit in between is a bit, is a bit kind of shady. So we, we're doing well with mountain bikes mm. this year. Last year we didn't do so well with mountain bikes. A lot of it is based on the pricing that year and also um, the availability and how we're not at the top of the manufacturer's list as being the first, people, first bikes that are made, so we often get delays, which does affect our, our sales. If you look at a company like Rally that was making across-the-board 
well, still is um, in, in its whatever corporate structure it now has. But there was a sense in which their top-end products, even though they were good and often made in separate factories, they, when they bought Carlton, for instance, it's almost a separate operation and rally special products. For a lot of people, a lot of consumers, they were sort of tainted by the fact that they rally also make kids' bikes and rally also make the chopper. And so how could you drop £2,000 on a, on a rally road bike? That's a good question, and we have to justify, uh, justify that at every point, which is why we're working with British Aerospace, printing titanium, and, uh, and we're con- consistently trying to push the, push the, the high end, which is what, what I'm passionate about, to in order. But the high end is not, is not the area where, where you, you I mean, we have to have the low end in order to finance the high end. So the high end is the bit where, that I enjoy doing, and, the, and the, the low end is the part where you've actually, it's the bread and butter. And, and, and also I'm passionate about that as well because I'd like to see more non-cyclists on bikes. So there's two different goals. One is my personal kind of, the kind of bike that I'd like to ride, and the other one is uh, trying to get you know new consumers into the shops and to buy new bikes. So in answer to that question, I think it's difficult. We did start with titanium bikes. That's how we started. We started with titanium. The idea was that we made steel frames the same. I think that it's very hard in because we're not uh, aiming to be a hand-built bicycle company. We're not aiming for that. So this is very much a, a labour of love, really. And we do, we do sell a good quantity of titanium frames, but um, it isn't what the business is based on. I can't, that's not a very good answer to the question. But, <laughs> well, so uh, that, talk us through the, the, the two contrasting bikes that we've got up here uh, so we, everyone can know what they're, what they're looking at. Well, we've got the steamer over here. This is a, uh, for those listening on the radio, this is a balloon-tired kind of beach cruiser um, with a nice integrated rack with a wooden top on it um looks like kind of laid back bike three speed what's this bike for uh, the idea is that it's a it's a, an entry level bike for someone that you know they walk into the shop and they think it looks comfortable it's our first it was our first bike that we made in aluminium which i vowed never to do but we uh, unfortunately got to the point where we couldn't make the steel bikes at a price that i wanted to and in the end it was inevitable that because there's making a, an aluminium frame was three times cheaper that we had to look at making aluminium frames in order to get the price point right this is intended for a completely new cyclist they walk in they look at it they see the big fat tires they see comfortable they see upright riding position it, it's uh, it, to you it looks like a beach cruiser to them it looks like a comfortable armchair of a bike so well, that's, i think they're one of yeah. the same thing actually yeah. and you can you could put your friend on the back yeah that's right so and can you put your friend on the you back? You can put your friend on the back, yeah. And well, actually, it depends how big your friend is. <laughs> Does that come in the There's manual? no weight limit, but and I haven't tested those it with big, your friend. Um, those big tyres will you know, cushion the harsh ride that we all know comes from an aluminium bicycle. That's right, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the, the idea is also the perception is that they're big fat tyres and it makes you feel like you're riding comfortable but it's a it's a comfortable bike to ride and uh like you said it's it's integrated so you've got the rack in there it's part of the frame you've got the mud guards which were custom made to it it's basically trying to integrate as many parts into the bike as we can so yeah and um over here in the in the in the silver silver and black mm-hmm. this is uh 
I'm going to betray my ignorance, but it looks like a kind of cross bike. It's a cyclocross bike, but um, the rear end has uh, a completely new technology. British Aerospace, well, Airbus approached us about two years ago to to try and uh, showcase a machine that they'd started uh, printing uh, metals on. And, uh, like a 3D printer? Yes. Can we, can we go and have a look at what's come out of the 3D printer? Yeah. Actually, I might actually be able to help you, because in my pocket... You just fished out of your pocket. What's that? Oh, look, a dropout. Which can be handed around, actually. I think the, the best way of explaining this, actually, um, is probably to watch the video afterwards, but if you just type in 3D titanium printing of a bicycle, it will come, it'll come up. But the idea... Um, was that British Aerospace approached us. They had a, a new technology, which is <coughs> much like rapid prototyping can be done now in plastic, but they've uh, developed a process to do it in metals and carbon. And to date, they've only, um, they've only done stuff for their aeroplanes and for some F1 applications. And uh, they approached us because they were avid cyclists um, and they had a program where they were supporting local business within a certain radius and the idea was to start printing some titanium parts. The printing process produces um, the part. Should I pass this one around? On a, in a bed of powder, basically. Um, it's completely hollow inside, could never be made in any other process, couldn't be cast. And it reduced the weight of the dropouts by half, and it's also stronger than, uh, than, than what we'd done before. Um, and how, we, is it, how, does it, how is it done? You've got lasers in there or something? I think the magnets. best thing to do is to explain, uh, to look, at the, look at the video. But okay. basically, it's, uh, it prints layer by layer. It's a big pot of powdered titanium. And the laser goes over and wells it layer by layer by layer by layer. And then basically, at the end of it, you open the thing up, brush away all of the, all of the powder, and out comes the part. What's great about it is that it wastes no material. So one of the biggest problems with machining is that uh, you have like way over half the material wasted. And titanium is so expensive that this is great because it wastes, wastes nothing. It only welds what you need. Um, and also the material properties of, of, uh, of that dropout, if you machine through it, it's the same as plate. So if you cast, it's obviously a lot weaker. There's potential for structural failures. But with that, you can even align the particles. And uh, so it's a, it's, it's, I, I think in the future, it's something that's probably not so cost effective now. But in the future, it's likely to be something that's adopted across the board because, because of the fact that you don't waste material. And they can do it in aluminium, they can do it in carbon. And uh, 10 years ago, rapid prototype machines were completely prohibitive and now you can buy one for 600 pounds and print your own plastic parts so it's something that's definitely on the horizon and so who's going to be buying a bike like this someone who races cyclocross fairly uh, competitively so they can turn up on the start line and say hey i've uh, got this bike out of the 3d printer <laughs> it's not going to be that long it's the, it, the, the the size of the part that you can print is only dependent on the size of the bed and the, at the moment the bed's the size of this laptop but it won't be long until the bed you know, could be the size of the table and then it could print, print frames. Um, we are making 50 of, these, 50 of these frames and they are affordable and so we are using it in production and, uh, and we will be releasing 50 frames with that, with that dropout on for next year. So we've tested it and we know it works and we'll be the first person, people doing that. So it should be good. Well, I was speaking to one of your competitors, Chris Boardman, okay. um, about a year ago and... I was sort of asking him what was, a, what was distinctive about the British market, and I was basically hoping he was going to say, British market has realised that the best bike 
is a doors galaxy and that's what they want to buy, which is sort of the answer that I was looking for. But he, he gave a completely different answer, which was a different answer to a slightly different question. But it was actually, in a way, more interesting. He said that Italians buy on, on looks and style of the bike. Americans buy on the customer service that they get from the bike shop and the company. And British people buy on price. And that was from Chris Boardman, who's running Boardman Bikes. Is, for is Halfords. That, is, is, for Halfords. Yeah. Is that, is that a fair uh, view of things? I think, I think um, the Halfords part's important because I think uh, that's been the biggest problem for the UK, UK bike industry is that people expect only to spend £150 on a bike. And it is quite depressing when, you know, Germany's... Pre- you know their their average spend is like 500 euros and UK's 150 but i think we're we're coming out of that although boardman's bikes are not at the 150 pound level are they they're a little bit higher up in the no. sort of attempt to reach out to something a bit more aspirational isn't there there correct but i think maybe that comment's based on the fact that he works with halfords and that's uh, that's where that comment's come from probably Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would agree with it to a certain extent. But so, what, um, are, what are the defining features of the British market from your point of view? If, if that's the Halfords view, what's the charge view? The charge view is that there's uh, a whole group of people that haven't got bikes yet that we want to sell bikes to, and uh, and we would never go. We we can't make a bike for probably less than two hundred ninety nine pounds. I'd like to be able to, but it's just not possible. But to that's make still one that's still for a lot of people in this room. Who thinks two hundred ninety nine pounds is quite a low price for a bike? Yeah, and who thinks £500 is a low price for a bike? £800? But you're already converted, and I'm, I want to convert yeah. the other people. So uh, that's, uh, I'm glad that you don't think that's too much. But I mean, it was, it, the traditional rule of thumb is for a good bike, it's two weeks' wages, isn't it? Yeah. What is, what's that? Is there any... Yeah. Is, no, that's, 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 that's more. <laughs> that's more. That's like a, That's two months or something, I think. Yeah. Pr- price point's something that... I'd love to be able to go lower, but you have to have a certain um, amount of quality. And I think that if you make a bike for £150, the, the problem is that they might buy that bike, put it, use it once, not like the experience, and never use it again. So, so my thought is that as long as we make a bike that lasts and that works and that we've got good parts on, then if they come to pick it up in their garage again to go out for another ride, that it works again. And you can't make a bike for yeah. less than £300. And, and then so there's that. a job to be done convincing people that, that's, that they should think like... Germans or Dutch people who spend a bit more, right? I think that that's already changing. I don't think it's changing for Halfords customers because they're used to spending that. That was my point, really. I think it's already changed. I think that we think that the UK bike and the UK customers for bikes are prepared to spend more money now than they used to when there was like a full suspension bike in the in the Daily Telegraph for sixty quid. I mean, there's some people who say that those sort of bikes shouldn't actually be allowed. To be sold because they shouldn't they are be allowed hazardous. to sold. Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to sold. You see them in Tesco's with the forks fitted around the wrong way, and and uh, the worst bit about that is not just the fact that they might be dangerous, but also the fact that the whole experience of riding the bike is terrible. So you'd never get on it again. And the bike boom in the UK. This is a question I've been asking a number of the people who've been sitting where you are. Where where is it is it real, and is it sustainable, and where do you see it going? I think the bike boom, uh, we, we were, we were, I, I've obviously been in the bike industry longer than what you would call the bike boom. So, exactly, um, so you can see before you know, I used and to go, after. I used to go for dinner at places and people used to ask me what I did and I said I designed bikes and they'd just talk about something else. And now it's, uh, it's the talking point because it's, uh, it's fashionable and 
but I but I do think that the infrastructure that's being created in some of the cities, in particular, is creating a much more long-term um, cycling culture. And I think that's what we've got to what we've got to probably focus on shifting to. And I think that it's not really a boom. I think it's just a shift in in uh, people's attitudes towards transport. And you particularly see it when you go to cities. It's not that much different in in the rural communities people aren't no it's just changing here and every time i come here i'm surprised at how many people how many more people are cycling and and i don't think it's necessarily a fad i think it's it's here to stay because of a number of different reasons and uh one is the infrastructure that's being created but two is the fact that i think people think it's a more greener more affordable way to and more more fun yeah and more fun and also uh it gives you a certain level of fitness so i think it is it's here to stay. And, and so I hope a, it is anyway. As a company which stands to benefit from, you know, an increased modal share of cycling, if we're going to go into policy speak, do you see it as a legitimate thing for your company to do to lobby government and, and press for the kinds of changes that only politicians can make? You know, can, people can make all the kind of decisions that they might like to make, but if the governments are not there putting in the bike lanes or whatever it is, else it is that needs to be done then um, I think the bike the bi- is going to be stunted I think the bike industry the UK bike industry does a good job of doing that already I think the biggest failing probably in the cities is that it's being done by halves and they're not unique bicycle lanes like you would find in Holland or, or Germany but I think that you know everyone complains about that but you have to start from somewhere and what Boris has done and and, 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 and also in other cities around the country I think that You've got to start somewhere, and if you look back ten years, it was it was terrible. But but the UK bike industry, with the different groups that do lobby the government and do put pressure on them, do a good job of doing doing so. It's in their interest, and and they and do. But a good job of it. you see yourself as part of. of uh, I'd like to, to be push. more. I'd like to be more part of that. But um, I my UK distributor does a, he they're on that board, and they they do a lot of they put a lot of effort towards that. Myself personally, I probably should do more. Yeah. And, and as a bicycle designer, where do you see the future of bike design going? I mean, we, you've shown some fascinating technology in terms of printing of, of titanium, but what other um, either trends or technological leaps forward are, are you excited about for the, for the design gurus here? Because we are in the design museum after all. I think this whole um, this process is going to, undoubtedly open up the high end of the mar- uh, part of the market i think also um i think we'll come to a point where the use of carbon fiber uh shifts into other materials i think that there's been a big fad on that for, for road bikes and i think that that is not necessarily going to be uh, how it continues um in terms of where the trends are going in, t- in terms of cycling i think the whole um designing bikes for people that don't want to sweat and you know just want to wear their normal clothes i think there's the key the, there's a key gap in the market there where um they've you know cleaned up in holland but um in the uk there's still very limited the amount of people that actually cycle to work in their in their suit yeah. And I think that that whole market is probably still open. I mean, that whole low maintenance thing is definitely a key a key trend. If you're looking at that, I think that's definitely something that we're constantly trying to work out how we can make the bike simpler, easier to understand, easier to maintain. We'd like to promote the use of hub gears more because we think for a consumer that's a better better product. But it's very difficult for the bicycle retailers to to push that because they're worried about servicing issues. But we think yeah, I mean that's a really interesting question because I've always been a big enthusiast for hub gears because it's simple 
and uh, yeah, it's simple and clean. Mm-hmm. Um, why why do they have them all over the place in Germany and Holland and 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 not here? It's a good question. I I I I can't answer that. I do feel that the big manufacturers don't push the hub gear system simply because they they like the obsolescence of the derailleur gears. There's sim- simple answer of what we get when we get sold when we're in when we're being sold by Shimano or SRAM, I think that when it's not something that they focus on because I think, my guess is that um, if it all switched to hub gears, then they'd lose a lot of money. Really? So they're just uh, looking That's at my, my personal That's my personal thoughts. Yeah. But I think that, I think that um, there's definitely, you know, the, the use of it is in Holland um, and uh, it's just typical of the consumer studying the bike a bit more the germans love to know everything about what they buy and uh and i think that i think the english probably like to see all the bits on the outside and all the features they're going to get 21 gears and suspension forks and things like that they don't look much further than that from a general consumer yeah they're getting more for their they money. like to buy more for their yeah, money yeah i think they're getting more for their money well that gap comes back a little bit to the price issue rather than the function issue now i'm going to ask you the question about giving advice to people who might have been where you were, um, who might be now rather, where you were seven years ago. And I can see that you might want to give them some really bad advice so that they don't you know, start out as a, as a new competitor to you. But if you can just step aside and, and listen to the angel on your shoulder rather than the, than the devil, what would you advise someone who who's, wants to start a company that's um, you know, making something in, 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 in bike world, it doesn't have to be you know, whole bikes, it could be any kind of product? The first thing would be to uh, go to some factories and look at what people do, whether it's in China or Asia or here in the UK, go and see how it's all done um, and then make your own decision as to what you feel is uh, is the right thing to do. I mean, obviously, I'm friends with uh, people that are hand-building bikes. It's a completely different market, and, so, um, and, I, and I was never after that market because I wanted to try to see if we could, uh, we could compete. My goal in the end was to compete with the bigger manufacturers. Hopefully one day we'll be able to, but that was my goal, was to try and make... So it's a different thing. So um, if people have got a, a dream of being a bigger bike company, I think the best thing to do is to go and, uh, go and see how the others do it. That's the, the primary thing. I learned so much from visiting Taiwan, taking out all my misconceptions by going there, seeing how good they were, seeing how passionate they were. Um, and I think it's not something that's documented well enough because I think most people think... Um, it's horrible and these horrible bikes are coming out of this horrible place and and it's not really like that at all so and then in terms so that's on the sort of production side but then mm-hmm. in terms of the marketing and sales side how do you come up with a product that's attractive you know because everyone can think of something that they would like and it's the right product for them but then actually translating that into something that people want to I think the biggest gap in the, in the bike industry is, is, the, is the marketing. I think that, that we're not particularly good at it, but most of the bike companies are pretty poor at it, and I think that's probably the biggest gap because, um, you know, we try and do things a bit different. If you can think completely different and get some good design input from uh, external kind of fashion companies or even uh, technological companies, then you, you're on to a winner because I don't think that the bike industry is particularly good at it. So that would be my advice uh, on the marketing side is that there's not... It's not rocket science, and the big companies aren't doing it very well. well. Thanks, Nick. I'm going to do something which I haven't done all evening, 
which is a, slightly remiss of me, but offer the chance for the, uh, folk here in the room to ask a question. So if there's something that as long I, as I don't, as long as I don't to, know them. to Nick, um, you, you'd like to ask him about what he does at Charge um, and uh, the bike industry in general, this is your chance. Yeah, at the back there. So let me just repeat the question so that those who are listening on the radio can hear it. Um, it's about whether you have other plans for printing more different things in, in titanium. Yeah, we do, is the answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's better parts that you can get better advantages of from. And once you look at how it's done, you could imagine, for example, a crank would be a lot easier to produce in this way. Um, you can do things like uh, very complicated, complex parts, eccentric bottom brackets with, with uh, splines on that are in, internally, which you couldn't make, so there's loads of bits we could make. But um, in order to get it onto a production bike, I had to choose something that was fairly small and had a fairly decent advantage. Um, so that's where we started. But it is cost-effective to do other parts, so seat clamps, seat posts, stems... Um, and I think you'll probably, well, from, from what I've heard now from the place that's been doing it in the inquiries, they've got, you'll see more of it in prototyping. But it's just uh, taken a while to, to get there. They've been doing it for a while. It's not, it's not completely new technology. I just haven't seen it on bikes. So, Let me, let me just say that for the uh, benefit of the radio listeners. It's about colour schemes and where the, the inspiration for your colour schemes comes from. My inspiration for colour schemes and bikes and saddles doesn't come from any other bike companies. It normally comes from shoes and, uh, and clothing because I think the only way that we can look at trends and maybe hope to be... Because we, we're, we're two years in front of what you see. So I'm having... We've just finished our 2014 bikes um, and all the colours. So the inspiration comes from there. If, if it was completely down to me and we didn't have the pressure of the industry and the bicycle distribution network we would and we did at the start of charge stay with the same colors for the for a until it stopped selling basically until until the sales went down but um but the bike shops dictate and the bike distributors dictate that we have to we do have to change because they that's the way that they they want it and we do have to listen to that so in answer to that if it was down to me we'd be making silver white black um and maybe one colour bike, because but but we are there's pressure on us to to do more. So so my inspiration just comes from anything that I see that's outside of the bike industry because the only way that we're ever going to be doing something different is to to look away from that. So and what is the logic behind the year models? Is there is there any benefit to the customer from that? It's a good question. It's something that I argue a lot in. Uh, and, and, and we do roll over colorways um, if the bike's particularly successful because I think it's ridiculous not to. I think, um, where's the logic? I don't really know where the logic is, but unfortunately, when we get to the levels we get to with distribution, we, we're at this kind of... It's difficult. I can't... It's much more political than it is what I always want, and you, can't, you have to compromise at some point. So, so the logic is So who gains... From from you know, annual cycles of uh, of a product, it's about turnover of stock, probably, and um, and the model year. Um, you have to change your parts each model year, so you have to update your parts because new new better parts come out. So um, 
I can't answer and that are, question. Are there, but no. it, it seems like you could go, you know, there's yeah. turtles all the way down. Yeah. You know, are the new parts from Shimano and SRAM better than the last year's parts? Or are they uh, just new for the sake of no, being new? No, they're better. They're better. I would definitely say they're better. They're more cost-effective. Every year, whenever we see something, the, it generally gets more cost-effective. So the parts definitely get better every year. That's all they can do because they're competing against each other. So Shimano's competing against SRAM. SRAM's competing against... If it's hub gears are competing in Sturmy Archer, they're always trying to improve. I guess it depends what you, what your values are. I mean, I'm, I still ride eight speed because, yep. you know, the chains are cheaper. They don't, nothing wears out as fast as it does on eleven speed. Yep. I mean, that's for me better. But someone else thinks eleven speed is better. Nothing wear. I, 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 Things don't. They don't wear out as, as fast in my experience. Okay. But maybe that's maybe that's just me. Yeah, mm. I, I need to get a, a, a eleven a, speed and try. A, no, I have, I have had them, and when you replace the chain on that, it's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. Um, so, but they have to make those developments, and a lot of that technology, like it does, if you look at Shimano, it always trickles down in the end, and it gets to the cheaper price point. So that and that that's the advantage that you get, and the and the parts that are on, on bikes now that were, you know, if you look back five years, it's a lot better and a lot lasts a lot longer. So especially from Shimano and SRAM. So right. yeah. Well, thank you, Nick Larson from Charge, for being so frank and honest with, with everyone. I'm sure it's been of great interest. So a round of applause for Nick. Thanks. I was talking to Nick Larson of Charge Bikes at the Design Museum. That's it for the bike show this week. Goodbye. You are listening to Resonance. One over, oh no, not. <laughs>